Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, September 15th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember, our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicky's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 after the 22 the hour. And we have another great show for you today that's going to include what does it really mean to stand up for cancer? Remember that show that was just just on? Yeah, stand up to cancer. And can the U.S. economy survive preventive health care? And when is it okay to take an antidepressant? And should doctors withhold information from their patients? And lastly... Keeping up with the Ebola virus, the ongoing story, it sounds much like the swine flu virus to me. Did you watch the TV show on September 5th this year, 2014, with the, with all the movie and television stars and comedians and popular bands that were moderated by uh, Katie Couric on Stand Up to Cancer? I did, and you know, it's very, it, it's amazing at how the power of the industry, the, the whole industry that has to do with, with movies and television is so powerful a way to communicate with people. And we have all these people who are not experts in cancer at all, making conclusions and giving us advice about what we should do to stop the cancer epidemic. People who, pay attention to celebrities. And who do you think's behind all this? Who was making all the money and using these people to kind of support their financial interest? Lots of conflict of interest there. Well, you know, it really was a great fundraiser on early detection and research for cancer, appealing to everybody. Appealing, yeah. It's because the music is great and the people are funny. And it was a great uh, kind of spirit that, that brought us along to try and unite to fight cancer. But we have to remember, we started the war against cancer in 1970, and it's now 2014. We've made very little progress in some areas of cancer and its treatment. And in some areas, we've done a little bit is what I would say. But we certainly haven't found the cure for cancer, and we haven't done very well in prevention. You know, there there were a lot of tear-jerky stories and stories of success uh, with chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. But the thing that they didn't really talk about were the prognoses and the statistics. They showed a lot of rah-rah stories of people who were very emotional because they thought they had beat cancer. They didn't really say what they did specifically. They didn't tell us how long uh, they would be expected to live. These are mostly people that were in remission, although there were a few cases of people I'm sure were cured of cancer. But it's like most of the ads that we see when they talk about uh, cancer and cancer facilities. Remember, it was just a couple of weeks ago, Vicki, we talked about how the ads for certain places that advertise for a cancer treatment, like the Cancer Centers of America, and some of the things that they were, they were putting out there in the literature or in their ads, it made it sound like it was this wonderful place where they cured people on a regular basis. And, and in actuality, what they said in their ads was no more than a few testimonials and people giving us the rah-rah-rah technique because they had a relatively good experience there. But what was the hard data? That's well, some, never, hardly ever revealed. Well, some of what they said that stands out in my mind were things like they said, 
raise money, save lives, join the march. Yeah, right. You know, they were trying to get donations. Save lives sooner. Get the right drugs to the right patients. Yeah, it's like Think Pink, right? Yeah. Same sort of thing. But, you know, then I, I, I thought, who were the sponsors? Yeah, exactly. And the sponsors were well, pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, well, of course. And And... They must have been the ones that, obviously, they're the sponsors, but that they paid for this big show. Well, of course. And there were, the whole thing was like one big infomercial. Exactly. Um, it was Genentech, Amgen, Novartis, Pfizer, and then there was a Japanese uh, pharmaceutical. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. E-I-A-S-I. Yeah, I see, probably. So you, have, you can't help but wonder why did they desi- decide to pay for a show like this? Because do these companies really need donations for research? I oh. mean, they have plenty of money. Oh, wait a minute now. These companies don't do anything much that doesn't improve their image and improve their bottom line, which is financial return on investment. These are corporations that are put together that are responsible to their stockholders. They're not responsible to you and me. And their ads are disgraceful. I mean, you look at a direct-to-consumer ad, the way that's put together is very biased. It's sort of like the tobacco companies that are out there trying to sell tobacco to kids and we and, and think that that's okay if they can get away with it. I mean, well, it, the whole this is show the same was kind of thing to me. the whole show to me seemed like it was one big ad for big pharma and the researchers who depend on that income. Exactly, and the researchers want to support big pharma any way that they can. Well, they have because to if they want to, if they want to keep their jobs. I mean, the the industry in research is huge, and if you're a research scientist and you're working at a medical center, say, uh, if you don't do something to bring in funds for the university that you're working for, you aren't going to be there very long because the whole idea of the university as well is to not just educate students, but to to be financially successful so that they have a bottom line for their facility as well. And a lot of the education, of course, in medical centers is coming from who? It's Big from pharma. the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, they teach so them about how to use their drugs. Well, yeah. some of the universities are stopping that. Finally, you know, after 60 years. Or yeah, but money years, talks, you know. Money does talk. And how many deals are made under the table for stuff like this wouldn't surprise me. But I was thinking about this big marathon that was going on with the stand-up to cancer that was on TV the other night. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but wonder what is going to be left because will the money make it to the research? Oh, that's I mean, this is too. about a return on investment. And and to me, it seems that the money that they were collecting for people, first of all, were probably going to, was going to pay for that TV show. <laughs> you have to imagine that. And that was. had to have been a lot of money to pay for that TV show oh, for the for first sure. thing. For sure. And then Big Pharma already has a lot of money. I well, mean, they, that's how they make more. They spend a lot of money on advertising. And that's what keeps money flowing back. And to me, so this was the just people a, that were donating money were paying for that advertising. You, that's, that, you'd have to imagine. So that. you can't help but wonder: Is this really helping people? Well, I mean, I don't think this is helping people at all. It's giving them the wrong idea. Do we really want to go out and try and, and cure cancer? And the average person said, "Well, of course we want to cure cancer, but isn't the real question how do we prevent it?" Well, I mean, also, there's nothing they, wrong with a cure, but but, but, but it's not. The, it shouldn't be the primary thing, and it shouldn't be a thing that is. Centered around return on investment and dollars is the primary uh, issue. I also couldn't help but feel that they wanted to get people to participate in their research and their experimental drugs because they talked a oh, lot about 
some of these tearjerker stories were people that had taken experimental drugs and they made it seem as though those drugs cured them. Sure. Well, on we don't know how happen. long that they are feeling better. Mm-hmm. We don't know if it's a lasting thing. We don't know really about the quality of their life. We don't know what the side effects You're are, right. if they're going to get another kind of cancer from taking those drugs sure. or well, heart disease or Look what at have the tumor you. board that I went to. I'll leave the name of the place un- unknown. Last week, and you were there listening because it involved one of my patients. And and one of the things that they offer people because they are a research institute is the oppor- they call it the opportunity to participate in a clinical trial. And it's the doctor's responsibilities to, to act every patient that has cancer if they would it. like to participate in and the study. And it's like I wonder how many doctors themselves would first of all take the chemotherapy that's offered, although I have to admit today chemotherapy is much better than it was 20 years ago. There's a big shift in how chemotherapy is given because we have ways of controlling some of the side effects, and there are benefits to chemotherapy in general. The question you have to ask yourself is, when do you want to take the risk for the insurance you get of not having a cancer recurrence or of clearing up that cancer at the at the other end of the spectrum, looking at what are the complications and side effects of the treatment? If you're looking at a stage four cancer, the five-year survival rate globally is in the range of 2 to 3%. Now, do you really think that taking a chemotherapy or any other treatment that's invasive or has side effects that are significant is a wise way to go? Or would it be a time to try things that have to do, that you could use that are far less aggressive, maybe not so well proven, but aren't going to hurt you because they don't have side effects? And wouldn't it also be a good idea to be looking at what you can do to support the person who is inevitably going to die except for that 2 or 3% and prepare them for what's going to be unfolding in the next few months or years, a few years, uh, as this process unfolds? Those are the real questions and issues that we should be looking at in people who have far advanced cancer. One of the other sponsors and uh, organizations that they mentioned um, during this Stand Up to Cancer was the American Cancer Society. And a lot of people really respect the American Cancer Society, Mm -hmm. and anything they say, they believe that. Mm -hmm. But people need to be aware that the American Cancer Society is basically owned by big pharma. Well, indirectly they are. I mean, they're an independent organization, but who are they funded by primarily? It's dollars that come from big pharma. So it's a big and keeping in interest. mind that big pharma has a financial interest as its bottom line, they are not going to be giving away money just because they're good guys. They make it sound like that. And in one of the arrangements they had with the American Cancer Society, I remember reporting on this with you three or four years ago, it had to do with centers that were being right. created mm-hmm. okay, by the American Cancer Society to allow people... To, who have cancer, who live too far away to be in residence, okay, for free. And you think, isn't that really nice of, of the American Cancer Society to do this? And wasn't it even better that the pharmaceutical industry volunteered to fund it? Because that's what happened. And there were millions of dollars involved in that. Then when you went back and counted it and you calculated up the amount of money that they would make from the sale of chemotherapy drugs that otherwise wouldn't have been used because these people wouldn't have been treated, then it looked like a very profitable business. So the image that they gave was a lot different from the financial bottom line that came into view. Also during this, what I would call a rally, uh-huh. yeah, that's right. uh, with Katie Couric as the 
uh, moderator, mm-hmm. she came out and she was like, you know, holding her arms up in the air and like, you know, like she was a cheerleader mm-hmm. because she's a big proponent of colonoscopies oh, due sure. to her personal experience because that's what her husband died of was a colon cancer. Right. But people need to remember she's not a doctor. She's a celebrity. It's a controversial screening test. Absolutely. And when she does something like that, the public buys it. You know, it's because I, she's she's a powerful name. I mean, look what Sally Fields did for Boniva. I mean, and osteoporosis. Well, there have been plenty of celebrities that have done a lot that way to and help. They make the a lot of money doing companies. that too, and and maybe they're even personally committed to it. But are they really experts in this? And the answer to that is no, they're not experts. And the whole business of colonoscopy, you can understand why Katie Couric. Correct. Might be interested in supporting it because had her husband had a colonoscopy a few years prior to that, he might be alive today. And it doesn't mean that colonoscopies can't save lives. They do, but they come at a cost. And the question is, is should you really be doing them every 10 years in people who have no symptoms? And when you talk to the people who are in the United States Preventive Services Task Force, which has become an outstanding and impartial uh, clearinghouse to recommend things like mammograms, PSA tests, pap tests, and colonoscopies, that question is left more open. And it's because we know that there is, there's another side of the story. Because, there can be risks. Well, every 200 that you do, you'll have a perforation or a GI bleed that will wind up with transfusions, and both those, those groups will be hospitalized. If somebody is in good physical condition because they exercise and their vitamin D levels are normal, about one in 500 people will actually benefit from a colonoscopy. So you're going to wind up with a few perforations and GI bleeds to offset that. So it becomes something like, are you really sure that's a good idea as a general screen? Now, as a test to work somebody up because they have symptoms, that's a totally different story. And I think that's a perfect test to do in that setting. Well, what I was noticing, too, during this big pep rally mm-hmm. is that how vulnerable the public is and how they oh, were yeah. they were reaching out to people's vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, were being like brainwashed and, and, I'm, oh. and being gullible about everything and not questioning it. Because as I watched it, I thought, I wonder how many people think like you and I do. Mm-hmm. You know, most oh. of the people are just... Watching this and we listening to these, listen, yeah, right. listening to these stories. I and, could just see Gary Null up on stage doing that. They'd barbecue him. Yeah, it, which is unfortunate but, you because know, one Gary's of the right thing, on the money. But one of the things they never brought up at all were anything about alternatives. They didn't say anything about prevention. They didn't say anything about lifestyle. Right. They talked about immunotherapy, and yeah, it was well, kind of like, well, what's immunotherapy? Most people probably think it's something to build your immune system. Well, How many people realize that that's a type of chemotherapy? Oh, for sure it is. And there are ways of boosting immunity, too, that we should be looking at because we can do that. And part of our defense mechanism against cancer is to have a a, a hearty immune system. That's right. So we have issues here that are very serious problems that we are vulnerable to because actors and actresses that are convinced because they have been talked to by somebody. And the media. and, And the media as well who buy into this are passionate and very convincing. And they're believing it. Well, they think they're really helping. Sure. So if uh, somebody like George Clooney says something, everybody listens or Sally Fields or Julia Roberts, you know, or some of the singers that are promoting Pepsi and Coke, they're thinking that these are really good things for your health. And what we don't recognize is that our lifestyle 
is what's going to prevent cancer. We should eat a healthy diet and exercise regularly. We're knowing now that just those two things are very powerful treatments for cancer and probably as powerful as, as most of the chemotherapies that we use to treat cancers. Just exercise. And there's so many people that get cancer and, and, and they often say things like, how did this happen to me? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. It's weird to think that this thing is growing inside of me. Like, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. There's so many toxins in our environment. Well, that's certainly got to be a large part of we it. We eat them. We breathe them. We touch them. We put them on our skin. They're in yeah. our air and our water. And our, and our, and our soil. There. there are so many reasons why lifestyle is important. If we harm our immune systems because we don't build it up, because we don't have the nutrients in our diet to, to make the products we need, that's an obvious one. And yet we don't talk about it. In, in the mainstream of medicine. And what about the role of detoxification? I mean, trying to clean yeah. out the sewer system in our body. I mean, if you're even just constipated, it backs up your sewer system and all kinds of things are going into our system, if you, into our in, internal body. If you have genetic defects that keep you from, de- being, uh, from detoxifying, we should be studying that. And what about the role of stress, you know, in that? Or lack of sleep. You just miss five hours of sleep one night, your immune system goes down about 30% in its defenses against cancer because your natural killer cells are depressed. And even weight because toxins Being are overweight. stored in our fat. Exactly. So there are a, a lot of things that are simple and they're common sense. But the ads we see don't convince us of that. And then you see a program like this, uh, Stand Up uh, to Cancer, and, and you're getting all the wrong messages. It's like... The answer has got to be that if you don't take care of yourself, that the medical profession will take care of you. And like if we march and if we shout and if we yeah, right. Get on the give bandwagon. money and, and if we do all these exciting things because we're so passionate about curing it, that that's going to cure it. But it hasn't cured it. No. We have to take responsibility for our own health Right. To prevent it. That's exactly right. Once it's out of the bag, then it's a, cha- a real challenge to sure. try to cure it. Sure. I mean, some of them can be cured, but Well, when you some get to stage them... four cancer, remember, and it's metastatic, it, it's about a 2.5% survival rate at five years. Now, that's a, that's a number that should be very frightening. So you can prevent cancer. And, of course, it doesn't leave us with a whole lot of... Uh, support from the financial point of view, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, about the, can we really afford to have uh, care that is preventive care in this country? And, and in general, I mean, that's a frustrating topic. But w- we have so many ways of taking care of ourselves. We get complacent about it. We eat bad food. We're stressed out. We don't get enough sleep. We're exposed to all kinds of toxic environments. America's overweight and our toxins are built up. We do nothing for detoxification. And then we think, well, how did I get cancer? It's like, well, do you really want to wait until you get cancer and then try to figure out what went wrong? Or do you want to do something in advance? And that's why I'm so opposed to this business of fighting for the cure for cancer. Think pink stinks from my point of view, even though it's logical, but it's not really logical when you look at the whole picture. It's not realistic. No. All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Nurse Vicki's first 2020 tip on why you should put coconut oil on your shopping list. And when we come back, we'll be talking about can the U.S. economy survive preventive health care? There's a good question. 
I think that you just might be surprised at all the healthy benefits there are with coconut oil. I bet you didn't know that it was an antiseptic and an antiviral, and it's good to use um, for skin infections. What you want to remember when you get coconut oil is that you want one that's organic. You want a healthy coconut oil. It's good for a moisturizer. It doesn't clog your pores and it hydrates your skin. It's good for acne even because it decreases the flare-ups and it eliminates the redness and the irritation. So put a little of that on before you go to bed at night. It's good for little pimples and just use a thin layer. And also it strengthens your hair and it controls frizzy hair. And so before you leave home or when you go on road trips or whatever, put a little coconut oil on your hair. And it's good for dandruff. It's a good lip balm. It prevents chapping and blisters. It keeps your lips soft and it smells and it tastes good. And it fades age spots even if you use it every day. And it helps to prevent puffy and puffy eyes and bags and wrinkles. So you can use it also as an eye cream. And it's really pretty inexpensive. You know, you can even add it to your coffee or your tea for energy and to to, to give it a better flavor. Really? I saw a whole I saw way? a whole video on that on online really? about putting coconut. Well, you put cream in your coffee, so I suppose it, it and that's got oil in it. Interesting. You can massage it into your head in a circular motion to relieve stress if you you know, and like around your temples and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's a good makeup remover and it doesn't have chemicals. Gee. Just leave it on for a couple minutes and then remove it with some with a warm washcloth. It works as a deodorant because it kills the bacteria that can cause BO. You can mix it with baking soda for a natural toothpaste. Mm. It cleans patent leather and metal and wood and it'll you know make it shine. It helps to heal small scrapes. It acts as a barrier to dust and bacteria and it speeds the healing of bug bites and bruises even. Wow, do you, do you have stock in this company? <laughs> the lauric <laughs> acid in uh, coconut oil. Oh yeah. It it boosts your HDL, the good cholesterol. So it's good for your heart. It's also good for breastfeeding moms. It takes three and a half teaspoons every day to increase the milk supply, and it's a good nipple cream if the nipples are sore. It alleviates dry, flaky cuticles if you rub it into your nails every day for your hands. And you can use that same toothpaste that I mentioned with the coconut oil and the baking soda combination as a facial exfoliator, too. (laughs) It's a good brain food. We've talked about it on our Mm -hmm. shows about how it's good for Alzheimer's. It removes some of the amyloid plaques. It's good for cooking at high temperatures because it's a healthy oil and it w- and it can withstand it's a that. Good saturated fat. That's like right. when you do your stir fry. Mm-hmm. And the NIH um, did a study that showed that it could help control C. difficile. Wow, lots of good things. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing we use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why do we have health care? Because when we get sick or hurt, we want to be taken care of and get well. And health care affords us emergency treatments and scans and x-rays and lab work and medicines and medical procedures and surgeries and hospital care and so on and so forth. It's pretty high tech, isn't it? And we know that health care is a business. But did you know that health care is a $2.8 trillion industry in the United States alone that depends on sickness? That's right. So where does prevention fit in if health care is about making money? It doesn't. That is (laughs) sick. Oh, that's the bottom line. And it's why we've been saying for such a long time that we need to speed the transition from disease care to health care. But success in this country is looked at as a financial thing and as power. 
And as long as that's what our goals are, then we do what we can to make money. And if it means selling a product that's not a product that's healthy for us, it doesn't change in any way. And the idea is to try and get through the FDA or to pay off the FDA or to have some kind of relationship with somebody who's somebody who can help you to do it so you can make money. That's so this is all. one of the reasons why when we were just now talking about that big marathon for cancer, oh, yeah. that they don't talk about prevention. It's a conflict of interest. Absolutely a conflict so of interest. So does it follow then that more sickness equals more money? Absolutely it does. That's right. And so who wants to have a healthy U.S. if they're in the healthcare industry? Only people who care about people. And it doesn't mean that high-tech medicine doesn't save some lives. Get that out of your head. I don't believe that medicine is a bad thing. The practice of medicine, the way it is today, is a lifesaver. It would be like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You would never want to do that. But you also equally would not, use, would not want to use it as your first choice. It should be wellness and prevention and nutritional and natural therapies. It should be all the lifestyle things we talk about. They're the most powerful medicines in the universe, Right. If you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. I've heard that once or twice. But you know, unhealthy products make money. Think about it. Cigarettes, drugs, things like Vioxx and NSAIDs and genetically engineered foods and fragrances, a lot of the skincare products and the sunscreens and the processed foods and the artificial sweeteners and the list goes on. Absolutely. I mean, look at the Vioxx story. If you want to see a revealing story of how big pharma operates, behind closed doors, look at that. They, we knew in 1995 that Vioxx caused heart attacks and strokes. The drug company knew. And we have proof of that because under the Freedom of Information Act, many years later, about a decade later, we got those records and we saw that they had that and that they concealed that from the FDA in 1999 when the drug came out. And so what happens over the next five years while Vioxx is on the market is that about 40 or 50,000 people died from heart attacks and strokes that they wouldn't have had had they not taken Vioxx. Same thing happened with with Bextra. And it probably is the same story with uh, with Celebrex and, and maybe even Advil. And some of the other drugs that are on the market, they are as dangerous uh, as these drugs that well, were taken off the market. Well, 300,000 people a year die from them and 30,000 are hospitalized. Other way around. 30,000 people are hospitalized. Oh, yeah. I mean, Sorry about that. 30,000 30, die. Yes. That's a big number. And, and those are preventable. I just had a patient come to me a few weeks ago. Athlete, been a good friend, known him for years. And he comes in, he doesn't look quite right. He says he doesn't feel quite good. And he comes in with back pain. We do the routine lab work and he's in renal failure. And I said, what's going on? And he tells me some of the medicines he's taken, of which one was Advil, which he'd been taking for a few weeks on a regular basis for his back pain. Just for a few weeks? Yes. And sometimes wow, and that caused than, renal failure. Well, you take just a few pills that may cause a GI bleed. Okay, and then you take well, it. Yeah. Okay, it does. We know it does that, and and of course it it causes the a lot of other problems too. It's it's not well tolerated. It's so hard for people to believe it. They just don't believe well, it. That's because there's so many direct to consumer ads, and everybody figures well if it's if the FDA approves it, it must be okay. 
Well, I mean, they approve Vioxx, and they approve Bextra, and they approve Celebrex. And the story behind those is, to me, a nightmare as I as we review them. And if you go to drsabuto.com and put the, uh, one of those topics in the search box, you'll get those stories in video or in audio that explain what happened. I mean, it's shocking. Well, one of the other things that I had just mentioned about unhealthy products that make a lot of money, one of them is, I mentioned was artificial sweeteners. Oh, yeah. Now, I think we should take a... A quick look here at aspartame. Aspartame is also known as NutraSweet and Equal and Spoonful, but it causes heart attacks and strokes also and metabolic syndrome and diabetes and increases weight. It can cause a lot of other side effects. But what's so weird about this is that the people that take it are frequently diabetics. Mm Mm-hmm. And it causes a lot of the symptoms of diabetes and a lot of the complications that diabetes can cause. Plus, it increases your weight. And people think that they're taking an artificial sweetener so that they're not going to gain weight. That's exactly right. You know, it was just about 30 or 40 years ago that Donald Rumsfeld, who at the time was involved with the company that that owned uh, NutraSweet, was was in a big war with with the FDA to try and get it approved. And he finally did. Now, they knew a lot of this stuff then, but the whole idea was what? Was to get the thing on the market so it could start selling things. What I say and what anybody with common sense would say is if we're not sure something is safe, why would you use it? Why would you promote it? Do we really need NutraSweet? Are there other ways to sweeten things? Absolutely there are. Yeah, you could try Stevia for one thing. Okay, so do you think that if we um, changed health care from disease care to health care, how much money do you think we would probably save? Well, instead of spending almost $3 trillion a year, it would be well under $1 trillion a year. I think so 80%. That, I think about 80%. So we're looking at what's good for people, what's good for America is not necessarily good for its pocketbook. And that's the problem we're facing today. It's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health, and I'm Dr. Len Zabuna here with Nurse Vicki. I'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio, and we'll be talking about when is it okay, really, to take an antidepressant. Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. When you're up, you're up. When you're down, you're down. When you're up against us, you're upside down. Oh, boy, you must have been a cheerleader someplace. (laughs) You know, when you're feeling down, what do you do to pick yourself up? Indeed. Do you call a friend? Do you take a walk? Do you meditate? Do you watch a funny movie? Oh, give me a drug. Or do you go shopping right. or have a drink? Give me a drug. Or huh? take the antidepressant. That's right. Okay. Well, antidepress- That's what everybody thinks. Well, antidepressants are not a new topic for us, but a new study just came out with even more adverse effects, especially on innocent children if their mom takes them during pregnancy. So what happens? Oh, okay. Well, first of all, it's important to know that all these SSRI antidepressants like Prozac and Paxil and Celexa, Zoloft, Lexapro, Luvox, None of these drugs ever solve the underlying reason for why we're depressed. Because the problem we have is not that our neurotransmitters have gone bad and depressed us. 
in normal depression. You may see that in schizophrenics. You may see it in manic depressive psychosis, but you do not see it in just people who are depressed. It's the other way around. We get depressed and then our neurotransmitters are off and we're low in serotonin. But there are thousands, thousands of neurotransmitters that are involved in maintaining brain function. And because we know about three or four or five of them, we think that if we manipulate those, that we've got the cat's meow and we've solved the, press, the problem with depression. But you can raise your um, serotonin levels by calling that friend or taking that walk exactly. or meditating or watching that funny movie. That's because the brain is responsive to your mood and to what you do and to physical activity. And all those things are important. So we're touted, we're touting that these drugs will increase serotonin and or norepinephrine, which is what a lot of these drugs do. And, of course, they don't work any better than placebo does. Well, a lot of times what they do is they mask the feelings. Exactly. And the thing that's really weird is that they can make people suicidal. And they can give them side effects that would make you depressed, like if you had (laughs) sexual difficulties and all that kind of thing. But so let's talk about this study for if pregnant women take antidepressants, what happens to their children? Yeah, well, that's that came as a little bit of a surprise. First of all, we've known that if you take SSR antidepressants, it increases the risk for for fetal uh, defects, Okay, for birth defects. So that's a big thing to keep in mind. And while they may not be terribly common, they happen. And if you're the one that it happens to, you've got a, a big issue there. And up to 20% of the women in the United States are taking an antidepressant during their pregnancy. And what they found in this study from McMaster University in Canada is that what happened is, is that there's an increase in fat accumulation and inflammation in the liver of adult offspring of women who took these drugs during their pregnancy. So their babies grow up to be obese and have a higher incidence of diabetes. Exactly. So, and I'll bet many of them have never made that connection. Well, you wouldn't, but they must have suspected it because they did the study. What's amazing to me is that what these, what almost any drug does in our in our metabolism is a mystery. And we discover a couple things about it that are good, and then we go off the off the deep end and we make the assumption that that's a good thing because we want to have that particular effect that this drug does. But look at a drug like Minipress. That was a drug that was used for hypertension. You know what its use is today? It's to grow hair. Oh, that's like Rogaine. Rogaine. They rub <laughs> that on your head and it grows hair. Now, isn't that a little frightening to think that a drug like, like that that you use for your blood pressure has all these other effects what does it do to liver detoxification? What does it do to neurotransmitters? What does it do to liver function? Maybe it grows function? hair in all those places. Well, who knows? <laughs> I mean, it does a lot of things, but big pharma is not interested in looking at all those side effects. In fact, they're interested in not finding them. Why? Because if they do, then they have to justify the beneficial effects that a drug has. And that's why anytime you put something foreign in your body that's not normally there, it takes a lot of research more than we could afford to do to clear as something that's safe and that the positive effects are what that we're looking for are worth the risk of what could go wrong. Well, you just try to take people's antidepressants away from them. They don't want to give them up. Oh. And what's interesting is that we reported on a study not too long ago about how uh, 
exercise works just as well. Not as well, better. It actually works better. And placebo does, too. Stuff that that was done at Duke University, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, showed that those people who did exercise, meaning at least an hour three times a week, had the same beneficial effects of of the SSRI antidepressants that they tested. And they found that at, at six months and two years later, that the effects of exercise were sustained better than that from the drug. So why then would we would we use a drug that has all these side effects, of which we only mentioned a few? It can also cause headaches and insomnia. It can make you groggy, anxious, agitated, restless. It causes seizures in some people. It can cause bleeding, and it may even cause osteoporosis. Why would you use a drug like that? And anxiety, which is what you're trying to prevent. Well, it can, okay? And these aren't necessarily going to happen to everybody. They don't. But when you add them all up, they happen to a lot of people. And the question is, is why would you want to choose that over doing something that would help you understand why you've got the problem in the first place? You know, through psychotherapy or some kind of body work that exposes the secrets that we're holding from ourselves in our musculature. So if they don't work better than placebo and placebo is safer and does the same thing, should we be using placebo? Is that ethical? We'll be talking about that more in a later segment of this show when we talk about the nocebo effect. All right. Yeah. So I say that we've got an issue here that's huge. We, are tend, we tend to be a drug culture, meaning we look at something that can fix The us. quick fix. Yeah, rather than the one that works. I mean, if we don't take care of ourselves mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, we're going to have problems because that's how life unfolds in this culture. And we've been brainwashed into thinking that there's a drug for everything. There's some high-tech thing for, for everything. How can you spend $2.8 trillion for health care Okay, and have that be associated with healthcare that that's poor. How could you be ranked 37th in the world for the overall quality of healthcare when you're spending that much money? And there are other countries spending as little as three or four or five hundred dollars a year for healthcare and ranked in front of us. Well, the other thing too is that we can become depressed sometimes as a side effect from other medications that we're taking. Or from our lifestyle, like even taking some of these artificial sweeteners that we were just talking about. That or just take the beta blockers. I mean, they do that. The chemicals that are in our environment and a lot of the things that we use that we don't even think twice about, you know, skincare products and perfumes and other things. It all adds up and it changes the physiology and and the biochemistry of our body in ways that we don't anticipate. And sometimes they affect our hormones and then our hormones can make us depressed too. Absolutely. So what we're looking at is relying on drugs whose biochemistry and physiology we only superficially understand. Sometimes it takes 50 years to figure it out. I mean, look at the drug Darvon that was taken off the market three or four years ago after 50 or 60 years of using it because it caused cardiac rhythm disturbances that they decided were not safe. So the FDA black boxed it or took it off the market, said don't sell it anymore. That took 50 years. What do you think is going to happen to some of these very sophisticated designer drugs that we have uh, when we've used them for 40 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of things that don't make a whole lot of sense that we do when we could take personal responsibility by living a more healthy lifestyle and, and, and taking care of ourselves. I mean, just exercise does a lot to help with depression. And uh, even like talking to a friend. Oh, sure. Well, there are just 
there are a lot of things that we can take responsibility for that are a whole lot better than what we do. All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Nurse Vicki's final 2020 tip on big reasons to eat leafy greens. That shouldn't be much of a surprise, but we'll see what she comes up with. Yum, yum, eat them up. And when we come back, we're talking about should doctors withhold information from their patients and keeping up with the Ebola virus, what I would call scam. We need to take eating our leafy greens seriously because they are loaded with health benefits and they need to be included in our everyday diet. When we talk about leafy greens, they're a great source of antioxidants and fiber and minerals. They're low in calories and carbs, which is an ideal food for people that are watching their waistlines. Maybe Mother Nature knows what she's doing. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they include things, but they're not limited to uh, things like spinach and watercress and collard greens and bok choy and mustard greens and chard and arugula and romaine lettuce and kale. Sure. Tons of them. But go for the organic. And there are a lot of recipes nowadays, you know, that are popping up all over the place for these healthy greens. Well, there are a lot of vegetarians, right? Yes. They eat something. It's a good place to start. (laughs) Well, there are other vegetables besides the leafy greens. Absolutely. It's it's just that these are the healthiest ones. And a British study revealed that people that ate their leafy greens uh, were less likely to develop um, diabetes. Mm -hmm. Scientists investigated the intake of fruit and vegetables on the incidence of type 2 diabetes and the leafy greens beat out all the other fruits and vegetables. Yeah, they would. There's less sugar, right? Less fructose. There. And there's a great, and they're a great source of magnesium and vitamin K. Oh, right. For and sure. those an- nutrients are anti-diabetic. Mm-hmm. The Nurses Health Study, which is one of the most important studies, um, has examined the health habits of over a hundred thousand people over the years, including me. <laughs> I know. That's right. Of the uh, green leafy vegetables, and they found that there's a lower risk of major chronic disease and cardiovascular disease over a 14-year period of time. And the leafy greens are really important for your eyes and preventing macular degeneration, which is the most common cause of age-related blindness, and mostly because they're high in uh, lutein. Lutein. Lutein Mm -hmm. and zeaxanthin. Yep. So be sure to eat your leafy green vegetables. That's the best way to get the most concentrated food you can, and that's why we use that in in treating any chronic disease. At least I do in my practice. I often tell people to juice, just like the Gerson people do. And when you do that, you're getting the best combination of the most intense uh, concoction of vitamins and minerals and nutrients and antioxidants that your body can get to help with the repair of what's gone wrong in most of our chronic diseases. So placebos and nocebos, what's the difference? Placebos can create desired effects and nocebos can create negative effects. Exactly. And because of the nocebo effect from revealing possible adverse effects of treatment, doctors often don't like to discuss the possible negative effects due to the power of the mind and the fear that the patient won't comply with the treatment. Well, that's right. So how powerful is the mind? Well, I mean, what you think and believe is extremely powerful. I mean, the work that was done uh, 30, 40 years ago showed all this psychoneuroimmunology, which really is just telling us that what you think uh, determines a lot of what happens 
and it and it profoundly affects your biochemistry and physiology. And yet, when they do these double-blinded placebo-controlled studies, the the placebo effect is pretty much just discounted. It's excluded. Well, that's you know the effect that what we're what the person who's doing the study is looking for is the effect of the treatment that they're adding, and they're trying to screen what the placebo part of it is so that they can show that there's an extra added effect from a drug or some technology. And while that's interesting to know, what's fascinating to me is that we throw out the very thing that oftentimes is the most powerful. What you believe and think, that placebo effect in a positive in a positive way, is extremely potent. I mean, look at, as we were talking about earlier, about antidepressants. Mm-hmm. The SSRI antidepressants for mild to moderate depression, the placebo is as effective as the drug. And exercise was better than both. So you're really looking at something that is a powerful effect that we should be paying attention to. And now there's discussion about the nocebo effect with the pharmaceuticals and and medical procedures. Well, here we're we're looking at an article that was published by people who had a conflict of interest. When I looked at the back, they have conflict of interest disclosures. And the study was done out out of Germany. And the person who is the major author... Is was connected with Pfizer and four other drug companies that he was being. <laughs> so paid they want to sell drugs. Well, they want to sell the drugs and say that well, the only reason you're having side effects is because it's in your mind. <laughs> then, well, and some of it's no doubt true. I mean, you watch these direct-to-consumer ads on TV, and they're talking about heart attacks and strokes and seizures and liver failure and death and anaphylaxis and it's like oh i don't think i want to take that drug well if you've ever you... taken an if you've ever taken a narcotic for like pain say mm-hmm. you had a procedure or surgery or whatever you ever what have you i mean mm-hmm. you just kind of like you take it and you're just waiting for something for that wrong. feeling to happen yeah, you know right yeah well i what you anticipate <laughs> is an important thing to consider and i think that that's correct that it does have it does happen, but the, what's the role of the doctor in this whole thing? I mean, should the doctor minimize that there are side effects and just withhold them? Is there a legal and moral responsibility? Well, look at all these direct to consumer ads. They list all kinds of side effects. And of it course, doesn't some seem of to them make pe- a difference. Well, it? We still I know take because the I think because the way it's done, people don't li- they tune out to some of them. Well, think of it this way. When they're talking about the positive effects, they're spending a lot of time with it. Nice, slow language. It's directed at an eighth grade level of education. And when they talk about the side effects, they're really hustling through it quickly to minimize it. And it's more at a 12th grade level of education. So we're looking at an an attempt on the part of the manufacturer to comply with FDA requirements to show the negative side effects, but in a way that's not really fair. You know, with the recent death of Joan Rivers, mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering if this is going to have a nocebo effect with people having outpatient routine Surgeries. procedures, you know, and, and the the medication that they gave her was the propofol, which is what Michael Jackson mm-hmm. died from. Of course, well, they, totally probably didn't, they probably didn't give her as much or anything. No, and she's but, older. I mean, she's in her 80s. And so having a, a side effect from something like that, if that was what it was would be a lot more likely than someone like Michael Jackson, who was made but I'm wondering, But I'm just wondering if having an endoscopy, which is what I think the procedure was mm-hmm. that she was going to have, mm-hmm. I don't know if she had it or she was going to have it, mm-hmm. but she was 
that was well, the they procedure. typically use drugs like that for it, and that's why there are complications to those procedures. But I'm just wondering if reasons. this is going to affect more people because of that nocebo effect. Well, you'd have to think it probably will. Okay, but you don't really know. But we know that the, the nocebo effect is a powerful thing. Well, the thing about this JAMA study, the Journal of the American Medical Association, is that they were suggesting that the medication side effects are caused by the nocebo and not from the drug. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that, I mean, years ago even, when I went to nursing school, we were always told to be careful about asking patients if they felt nauseated mm-hmm. or telling them that right. they might feel nauseated when they took this medication because we, almost all drugs have that as a possible side effect. Well, you have to learn because how to you, ask those questions. Because if you ask it, then they become nauseated. Say, so how do you feel? Are you having yeah. any problems? Right, right. And then just slowly work into it. And usually if you listen, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. It just takes a little time, which we don't seem to have enough of these days to devote to our to our patients. Well, so obviously a lot of this seems like it's because they want to sell the drugs and the procedures and some of it's true and some of it's uh, some of it's exactly what they say because there's no question. I think that there is a nocebo effect from that. Yep. If they put that in your in your mind, that's going to happen. Is it the okay? power of suggestion is really powerful. Well, where do you draw the line? Is a placebo okay to use? Is it legally safe, to, uh, legally okay to do? Is it something you expect your regular practitioner to do if they work for a big institution where there are lots of rules and regulations? Would you expect the same thing from someone who's a healer, who you're giving more faith to? How does that role of interaction work between the doctor and the patient? When does a doctor assume... Uh, the role of being uh, the person who's directing care, and how mu- how much of the time does the patient need to be informed about what's going on? That's a real tricky... But don't you think a patient should be aware of the side effects? I think they should be aware of the side effects, absolutely. Okay, so, You're looking so at now the... they're aware of the side effects. Is that going to create the side effects? It will, in part. Yes, it will. And I, I think you see that. And that's why doctors tend not to tell you so much about the side effects because they don't want to put it in your head. Okay, so what's the most important thing is to have an effective, balanced, competent communication between the doctor and the patient. So they're exactly. just talking about the benefits, the possible side effects. I think usually doctors say these prob- things probably are not going to happen. Well, but if they do happen, you need to let me know. Because I had it could a partner a possi- who prescribed a drug, and a rare side effect occurred. And he was sued, and he lost. Okay. Should he, have, should he have told the patient about that side effect? They said yes in court. And was it realistic to do that with all the, all the patients? I don't think so. You know, there's a variety of hemorrhagic diseases that occur throughout the world. And, Serious. Right. And currently we're hearing a lot about Ebola, and Ebola isn't new so why is the CDC claiming the Ebola virus is inevitably now going to occur in the United States? Well, I mean, is it serious and dangerous? I mean, it is serious and dangerous. Well, when but 50 to 90 percent of the people who get it and die from bleeding, organ failure, shock, that's a big deal. That's a huge percentage of people that die. But the question about how is it spread is one that hasn't been worked out because let's face it, it's been around since what? 1976 that we know of. And what's the incubation period? It's up to three weeks. So are you going to really expect us to believe, Mr. CDC, that these people who are uh, living in those areas and have left the area 
who have been exposed to Ebola and are in the incubation period within 21 days have have not flown all over the world already? I know. And why because hasn't like, the epidemic or the uh, pandemic spread then? I know. Why? It seems like, oh, well, of course it would have spread. Of but course it hasn't. It so that's so the question. Well, it really isn't much of a question to me. Me, it's pretty straightforward that this is not as contagious a disease. It hasn't even spread to the rest of Africa. It's only in West Africa for the most part. So how are we, and it's been staying that way. And it's not a respiratory disease, and yet no. they're kind of playing up that it could be a respiratory disease. Well, you dress these people, okay, who are doctors and healthcare workers in what looks like a space suit. They're all covered up. And then you put them on television. What do you think is going to happen? The people who are involved, okay, with watching this are going to get the idea that this is a pretty bad disease that when you get it, it's terrible, which is true, but that it can be passed along to people in a very easy way. And that's really not so true. Well, aren't there other sporadic illnesses that we could be focusing on, too? We don't ever talk about or hear much about dengue fever or, or Q fever or rickettsial diseases like Rocky Mountain and spotted fever. You're right. So why don't we go ahead and, and, and make those the next target of our agenda from the CDC? I mean, what's the point of getting all freaked out about, about Ebola virus? It's because I think it's, it's being purported to be much more serious than it is in terms of its spread and that there's the possibility of getting the pharmaceutical industry to make vaccines and to make drugs that might be of some value, much the same as we did with the, with the swine flu scam of 2009, where we made all these vaccines and still purport that they're necessary when there's very little, if any, data to support that they were a good idea, and to stockpile drugs like Tamiflu, which have finally come out to show that they don't do much of anything and shouldn't be stockpiled. That's the fear I have about what's going on with Ebola. It's a similar story. Well, so it's, it's spread with secretions. Yeah. And the, the people are living with them, and they're living in the same house with them. That's a, that's a dangerous... Or they're taking care of them. Yes. You can, make, you can understand why they want to cover all up. Exactly. You know, I think I'd want to put a sack over my head, too. You well, know? okay. But what it does is it, this kind of appearance of showing people in spacesuits, basically... Uh, leads them to want to flee from the area and increase the risk for spread of infection, okay? And it also reinforces the view that some lives are more valuable than others. Mm -hmm. and, and not everybody can afford to have equipment like that, which for the most part, according to this Lancet article that was done by uh, people from the University of Valencia in Spain, isn't necessary. So what we have here is something that needs to change. Well, we're at the end of the show and want to remind you that we're back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsaputo.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for Health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Enjoy yourself. We'll see you next time time.